0: So it's time for a quiz. Did you know how many nonprofits there are in the United States? What? Did I hear you say 1.5 million? <laughs> awesome. You got that one right. All right, here's another question How many of the 1.5 million nonprofits in the US have a budget under $500,000 annually? I'll give you a minute. Okay, your time's up. The answer two thirds of them. I think the technical term for that is boatload. What does that tell us? Those of us in the space see that and think, wow, that is a boatload of underfunded organizations, nearly one million organizations. Why are there so many that are so small? My guest today asked that very same question and took on a five-year adventure to find out why. She learned that there was precious little data about how nonprofits grow or don't. She'd seen the challenge firsthand when co-founding a nonprofit. Her organization started strong and then hit a wall at $500,000. It was time to scale, but the challenges were daunting. You know what she's talking about, don't you? The phrase I hear most often is, I need to get to the next level. Today, my guest will tell you that there are only five things you need to do to get off the treadmill and move towards sustainability. Okay, so I'm smiling because there are only five things, but they're quite large but they are clear and based on interviews with hundreds of nonprofit leaders and funders. The interviews that my guest conducted began with a very simple question. What is the key to nonprofit success? I'm kind of thinking you wouldn't be listening to my podcast if you didn't care a hell of a lot about the answer to that. Welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Kathleen Kelly Janis is a social entrepreneur, author, and lecturer at Stanford University. As an expert on philanthropy, millennial engagement, and scaling early-stage organizations, her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, The Huffington Post, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, TechCrunch, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She is the co-founder of Spark the largest network of millennial donors in the world. Based in the heart of Silicon Valley, she is also the author of Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale, and Make a Difference. This book features best practices for early-stage nonprofit organizations based on the five-year adventure I mentioned, interviewing hundreds of top-performing social entrepreneurs. Kathleen sent me an advance copy of this book. I swallowed it whole. And I recommend it all the time. In fact, I might be recommending it more than my own book. So Kathleen, welcome and thank you for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So before we dig into the insights and advice in your book, do me a favor and tell me why you call yourself a social entrepreneur and why your book doesn't use nonprofit until it gets to the subhead. Your book is called Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale, and Make a Difference. So I was really struck by the word nonprofit not being in the title of your book and calling yourself a social entrepreneur. I want to know more about that.
1: Well, as you know, um, and as many of your listeners will know, social entrepreneurship has been a new trend in the past several years, emerging from this idea that it's no longer enough just to give a man a fish or even to teach someone to fish, that social entrepreneurs are really interested in revolutionizing the fishing industry. How do you shift the injustices that lead to inequalities and suffering in the first place? And so I think this is a really exciting trend in the nonprofit sector that has been embraced by many. Um, And there are many nonprofits that are still operating in old ways. And what social startup success is, is a playbook um, for nonprofits to emerge from that old way of operating and to modernize so that they can be more effective and ultimately get the funding that they need to grow and succeed in the work that they're doing.
0: Cool. I'm thinking, will you have my listeners at hello? Um, (laughs) So... um, uh, you and I are kindred spirits in that we both left corporate America to go work in this, uh, in this wonderful world. I wondered, I'm always intrigued about that switch and many people who listen uh, either have made it or thinking about making it. Did you have any kind of like an aha moment? I know you were a, a corporate attorney. Um, so I'm just sort of curious about the shift and whether you still practice law or whether you are more like a recovering attorney.
1: <laughs> well, a little bit of both. Once you're an attorney in a family that doesn't have any lawyers, you're always the general <laughs> counsel. <laughs> but I, um, I, it's funny you mentioned the aha moment, because I actually did have an aha moment. And um, I actually loved the work that I was doing. I graduated from law school and was a commercial litigation attorney. I was doing antitrust work, working with some of the top lawyers in the country on really fascinating cases with cutting-edge law But I grew up knowing that it was always my duty to give back to the community and to um, be a good citizen. My parents were involved on dozens of nonprofit boards in the small town where I grew up. And so, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Napa, California, wine country. Uh, (laughs) Really? Farm country when I grew up there. Um, And You know, my parents taught me that it wasn't just about making sure that the people in our communities had enough to eat, but did the organizations themselves have the resources that they needed to survive and thrive? So when I was a young lawyer in San Francisco, I immediately became aware of thinking about how I could do my part to help nonprofits in my community and ended up co-founding an organization, Spark. Uh, which engages young professionals in new forms of philanthropy to support gender equality organizations. And I did have this aha moment. I was billing hours by day and co-founding Spark at night and realized that uh, I, I heard this speech where the speaker said, you can be following your skills and doing really well in your work but not really passionate about it and you're not gonna reach your peak. You can conversely be doing something you're really passionate about it and be terrible at it and and also not reach your peak. And your peak is when you can both do what you're good at, harness your skills, and also do what you care about. And I realized at that moment that I may have been a good Commercial litigation attorney, but I was never going to be passionate about representing big companies, and that my real passions lie in, in in helping to make the world a better place. And so for me, it was an easy shift. I, I began teaching uh, human rights at Stanford, and uh, have been have been doing this work ever
0: since. I think that um, one of the things that's been interesting about the, I th- for talking to people who make the corporate to nonprofit shift is. Um, for me, it felt so joyful to me to realize that I could make a living and actually do something that was meaningful, that I was really passionate about. And that felt ridiculous. It felt like such a privilege. And but so much of what I talk about in working with nonprofit leaders and maybe why people find me kind of an, an, an interesting Personality is because I actually take. I I feel like I'm a champion for that joy because you can't really be wonderful at something if you aren't joyful about it. Mm, I love that. So um, I also would
1: say just to finish that point that the. is also true, that you can stay in your corporate job. (laughs) You may be joyful about about corporate work too and find a ton of satisfaction in helping to support nonprofits on the side as a board member, as a volunteer, as a donor. And so I think these lines are blurring more and more. And companies are realizing that if they want to keep their employees, they're going to have to get them involved in social cause work. So Hopefully that's helpful for folks out there who actually do like their work in the corporate world and don't want to have to leave it to be joyful and, and and make the world a better place at the same time.
0: You know, I'm sure that in your discussions with all these nonprofits, you learn what I learned, which is that people are always hungry for senior level volunteers, particularly board members. And so it's a huge opportunity to get on the field in a, in a way that's really great for people. So you talk about small organizations uh, metaphorically hitting the wall, and you, st- and you talk about it happening around f- the $500,000 level. So let's just start there. And, th- and tell me, Kathleen, that based on your research, what did you learn conceptually about what happens and why in tho- at that point in the lifespan of a nonprofit?
1: Well, for many nonprofits... in revenue is plenty of money to do the work that they need. $300,000 or $200,000 could be enough. In in the small town where I grew up, there are many nonprofits that are operating on those budgets doing important work in their communities and and should stay small community-based organizations. But for many organizations, they tend to get their idea off the ground, get just enough capital to get going, have some impact. And it's just when they hit their stride that they hit this wall, that they realize they are having an impact on the communities that they intend to serve. And yet they can't get the capital that they need to grow that impact, even though the need is there, And so this was something that we faced at Spark. We were doubling our revenue every few months in the beginning, which actually isn't that hard when you start out at $1,000. <laughs> you can double your revenue for quite a while before you hit the wall. Um, But it was real. We, we, We knew we were having an impact. We had the largest network of millennial donors in the world. We were harnessing millennial philanthropy in ways that organizations had never seen before. And we couldn't get the capital in the door to grow the organization to the places where we saw needed it. And and, and, and so this was something that around the same time I started hearing over and over again from organizations that they were on this treadmill, basically just trying to make payroll every month when what they really needed to do was focus on the impact that they were having and focus on the programs and the people that they were serving. And so I became really curious to understand, well, why are these organizations, these great ideas dying on the vine and how can we do better as a sector?
0: uh it's, it's a very interesting very very interesting and i i mentioned in the open that there that your book is really nicely organized and covers these five things that a nonprofit that is is ready but is having challenges going to that next level the five things they have to do now I I made a note that these five things are big, but in a relatively relatively short podcast, it's going to be really hard to give all five of them equal time. So (laughs) what I want to do is I want you to, if you would please, um, name the five and describe them ever so briefly because I want to actually lay them out, but I want to deep dive into a couple of them. Absolutely. I think
1: it does help to hear them all in context. And that is exactly what happened with my research is I was out doing interviews. I surveyed hundreds of leaders um, and then I went out and I sat down in person with 100 organizations, their staff and their beneficiaries and their funders, their, their founders, all to try and get to the bottom of this one question. Why is it that some organizations succeed and scale and others don't?
0: And I think I just realized why it is that I liked your book so much is that I'm actually <laughs> really, really jealous because I would have given my eye teeth to have done this project. <laughs> I'm just jealous. I just figured it out.
1: Oh Well, let me tell you, there's a reason why I did 100 interviews because they were so much fun I couldn't <laughs> stop. <laughs> and when you're meeting with people like Wendy Kopp from Teach for America and Charles Best from Donors Choose, it's very easy to get inspired. And one of the things that was so striking to me was that the themes that I heard about the foundations of nonprofit success were the same time after time after time. It came down to these five strategies. So testing and innovation and piloting your project early on so that you can get some proof of concept before you go out to market. And this is important because it integrates a culture of innovation into the DNA of the organization that helps you improve as you grow. Second, measuring impact and developing a system for collecting data from the very start. The organizations that tended to scale more quickly said they started collecting data from day one. And this is important not just to go out and tell donors how well you're doing, but to figure out what's not working and to use the data to improve your work as you grow. Third is fundraising experimentation and looking at a combination of earned and philanthropic revenue sources to test out a variety of sources before developing your funding model and finding that funding model that is mission-driven. Fourth is collective leadership and harnessing the efforts and the talents uh, and the passion of your team, whether it's your staff, and really putting them on the front lines and empowering them in in meaningful ways. Your senior leadership, um, the organizations that tended to scale quickly, said they hired senior leaders very early on, and that allowed them, the founders, to take a step back and focus on the fundraising and strategy that helped them grow, um, and also harnessing the the strategy. The efforts of your board and making sure that you have a strong board in place, which can be a really important catalyst to growth. And finally, uh, storytelling uh, and and prioritizing uh, that elevator pitch and, um, and realizing that an organization cannot build a movement if they don't have a good story. And that has to be true from the top to the bottom of the organization. And in prioritizing storytelling, not just for your founder or your CEO, but also for every staff member in the organization and board member and even beneficiaries, because everyone around you can be a brand ambassador and the best organizations figure this out and make it a priority. So those are the five. And and I think what's what's so interesting about them, I kept waiting for someone in my interviews to say, well, it's just charisma or a brilliant idea that gets someone ahead. And no one said that. And, and it's not to say that those, the charisma and good ideas aren't important, but it's really these five strategies that any organization can implement no matter how big or small.
0: And that's inspiring. It is, it is. And uh, so- Anybody who's uh, read my book or has spent time on my blog will tell you that the last two things, which are sort of this collective leadership and storytelling, are kind of, they kind of crawl all over me. Um, I, I use this, uh, this analogy that a really thriving nonprofit on the collaborative leadership thing, I'd say two things. One is that um, a really thriving nonprofit is like a twin engine jet and that the board Mm -hmm. leader and the staff leader are in that cockpit together and that each engine has to be functioning well independently and well together. The second mm-hmm. thing I talk about a lot is it is it would be naive to think that an executive director is in charge of everything in that sort of hierarchical way, and that it's important for EDs and CEOs to recognize that the power comes from all around them, from donors, from mm-hmm. staff, from volunteers, even, frankly, depending on your organization, from the opposition, That, that so that you really have to think about management and leadership in a different sort of way, which is one of the things I love about the nonprofit space. So so, so I'm all about that, and um, I think because I just, maybe it's because I'm Irish, but I've just always been a really good storyteller, and um, <laughs> and it has always struck me in working with clients that it is just, it's stunning how hard it is for people to tell a really good story because they know so much, and they don't know how to cut through the clutter with all of that, that, that they know. Now, having said that, mm-hmm. those aren't the things I want to talk about. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I want to talk about the first three, testing measuring impact and funding experimentations I think these are things that people find really daunting now what's interesting for me Mm -hmm. is that they kind of sing out to me from my days of doing new business development for MTV because my work was to try to figure out new ways for MTV to make money besides ad revenue. So we piloted ideas, we tested them out, we wrote, wrote business plans mm-hmm. to look at the bottom line, considered the impact on the brand. So during that time, I wrote the business plan for the MTV Video Music Awards and for the um, for their merchandising program. And um, the work mm-hmm. would be um, what is known as R&D. But in the nonprofit sector, these three things are th- seen As alien, as luxuries, like testing, planning, experimenting. Are you kidding me? Like, who has time? And if Mm -hmm. I do, in fact, go down this road, doesn't it increase my overhead? Um, so let's take, let's take Mm -hmm. them one at a time. So let's start with testing. In your book, you break it down based on this philosophy known as human-centered design, which I'm starting to learn a lot about, um, thanks to your book and others. So would you talk to me like I'm 10 years old, which I often actually behave that way, and explain to me (laughs) what you mean by human-centered design? And you talked about these sort of three principles that I thought was really helpful. Yeah,
1: absolutely. This is a trend in the Silicon Valley that is really focused on thinking about how to focus on a user-centered approach. And so in my research, one of the the themes that I heard that I think captures this well is the best organizations fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And we all know these organizations that are just hell-bent on their solution and uh, don't realize that Actually, they could be more effective if they were constantly testing and figuring out what's working and improving on what's not. So that's the essence of human-centered design. It's not just in the early stages of testing, but even as you grow as an organization. So I can give you an example. A Wishbone is an organization that really mastered this early on. They or a crowdfunding site for low-income kids to follow their passions. And when Beth Schmidt, the founder, was teaching in a low-income school in LA, she realized that these kids didn't have the same opportunities as kids that she had grown up with. So she wanted to create a platform for them to be able to get funding to follow their dreams, like going to cooking school or going to a uh, film school. But she didn't start by just building a website. She started with very small tests to see whether this idea had teeth. And so she, for example, assigned an essay to her students saying, what are your passions? And then she mailed these essays to her family using snail mail. And she asked them for money and said, who would fund, who'd be willing to fund these kids for a summer experience to follow this passion? She got back thousands of dollars and she realized that this was an idea that could actually work. That if you connected young people with people of means, that this would be a way to fund their work. But it took some time to get that model right. For example, she had to figure out whether whether the schools that she was searching for would give fellowships or whether the students could help raise their own money, for example, giving them fundraising skills. And so she tested out different approaches to the model before actually developing a website and seeking funding to get the full website up and running. So her point is you could build an engine and you can grow that organization around this engine. But if you are not able to develop an engine that is working well from the start, then it's ultimately not going to be effective. And so doing this early testing is really critical to help organizations get off the ground in a way that is effective from the start. Because once you put a stake in the ground and say this is what we're doing, it's a lot harder to uh, change that with funders because they have certain expectations.
0: So this notion of testing—it makes all the sense in the world to me. The—are um, you suggesting, Kathleen, that that if I run one of these four hundred thousand dollar four hundred thousand dollar revenue budget, nonprofits, can I do this now or did I already miss the boat?
1: Any organization can engage in testing. And that's what's so exciting about This process of human centered design is that it's not just about you find your product, you figure out what works, and then you're done. It's a constant process of figuring out whether you are doing what works. And so, this is where the user comes in and the importance of beneficiary feedback and getting that impact measurement in place from the start so that if you're connected with the communities that you're serving, then you can go out into those communities, give them surveys, get the feedback about what is working and what is not, so that you can constantly be improving on your process as you grow.
0: What I also liked is that you talked it's not just about the users. It's The really great solution to a problem that you've identified it has to take into a lar- has to take into account a larger village that can influence And impact the program and the decisions you make. And you need to hear those voices too. Those in the sector, potential funders. And you actually need to do your homework because ignoring that village, if you do, you do so at your own peril, don't you? Absolutely. And
1: I mean, this is another reason why you have to constantly be testing and innovating, because circumstances change. I mean, new presidents get elected, or, um, you know, new organizations pop up within your community. And so this is where you have to be constantly pressure testing what you're doing, and making sure that you are really honest about what's working, and what's not. And I think this is the biggest problem that we face in the nonprofit sector is there's very little incentive to talk about failure. And a big part of the human-centered design process is acknowledging when your programs might not be working. And nonprofits don't have that incentive to reveal that information because they have to get funded again next year. Totally. And
0: I, I think this is... I- Isn't it true also, I mean, you met hundreds of these people, so you know too, the people who run nonprofits, people who lead nonprofits, people who are board chairs, they are just not accustomed to not being successful. And so (laughs) these are type A people who get like 98s on their book reports. And so... (laughs) There's so many factors, you point this out in your book, there's so many factors that impact if I'm an executive director, that impact my ability to kind of fess up that something didn't work. My program, I, you know, so like my program, mm-hmm. idea did help some people, I certainly can't abandon them, or mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to, I'm really going to go to a foundation and tell them that the thing that they funded didn't work. And then, yeah. then the third one, I think is a, there's a certain ego is like, I thought this was, this is your solution versus problem thing. right? I, I thought this was the most fantastic idea and I'm totally personally invested in it. Yeah. So how do we grapple with that? All of that? Yeah. Well, I think, uh,
1: what's interesting is also that organizations that are serving, low-income people or helping to solve a social problem are doing good work. I mean, it might not be as effective as it could possibly be, but that doesn't mean that it's not good work. And so I think that's where it's hard to separate is, is this, not just is it good work, but is it the most impactful intervention that an organization could possibly have? So I'll give you an example. In Liberia Raj Punjabi started this organization called Last Mile Health. He was raised in Liberia and he was literally getting on the plane and saw millions of Liberians lining up trying to get out of the country desperately before civil war broke out and when he was able to escape he he vowed that he would come back and help the country. And so after med- medical school he came back and realized that there were very few doctors in a country of millions of people. And that people were dying. There was an AIDS epidemic. And so he engaged in some of this testing process to try and figure out, well, where am I going to be valuable? Where is my skills or my skills as a Harvard-trained doctor with access to resources in the U.S. going to be as valuable as possible for this country? And so he had about 13 programs going when he first started, everything from a women's clinic to an HIV-AIDS intervention in the capital cities. But when he was testing, he was, he was collecting data and figuring out you know, the, the marginal value of each of these programs and realized that he could no longer continue all of these other programs that he was working on because this one program, the Community Healthcare Worker Program, was so effective. Right. He had to throw all of his resources into that. And this was training people in the rural areas. To help deliver services because they were often walking 12 to 13 hours to see doctors in the capital city. And- What's incredible about this is that he threw all of his resources into this, built a multi million dollar program around it. And when the Ebola crisis hit in 2012, thank goodness that he did, because he was able to use these community healthcare workers to literally avoid a global health crisis. So I think that's what we're talking about here. It's not about, you know, are these programs doing good? Is this a good solution? It could be a very good solution. But is it the most impactful use of resources? And the way that you capture that is by developing this feedback mechanism to constantly be assessing your programs as you start and
0: as you grow. So uh, we are talking with Kathleen Kelly Janis. She's a social entrepreneur, author, author, and lecturer at Stanford University. She knows more than a thing or two about philanthropy, millennial engagement, and scaling early stage organizations. And she is the author of Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale, and Make a Difference. I want to talk for a few minutes about measuring impact if you're a small organization. And I, 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 maybe I'd heard this Albert Einstein quote before, but I'm giving you credit for it. <laughs> not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. Mm-hmm lots of small nonprofits use this as a bit of a sort of a cop-out not to figure this one out. Mm. I'm an ED of a $300,000 nonprofit. I have primitive metrics. They're mostly anecdotal. What can I do to make my case? Because I know if I don't, I'll stay at $300,000 for too long and I'll leave a ton of folks without the service advocacy or education they need to affect change. Mm -hmm. What do I do and what do I do with what I gather? Mm. Um, So you have a statistic about this notion of measuring impact. And I just offer listeners some hope that they could do this. Mm.
1: Yeah, this is a big struggle in the nonprofit sector. In my research, I came across this statistic that was staggering to me, which is that 75% of nonprofits collect data, only 6%. Of nonprofits feel like they're making good use of their data, six percent. And this is big organizations, small organizations, and everything in between. Data is perplexing for a lot of nonprofits. And that makes sense because nonprofit leaders go into this work because they care about the causes, not about data and numbers. Right. Um, but the good news is that you do not have to be a data scientist to be effective with data within your organization. And it's all about figuring out the three to five things that matter and going after those metrics rigorously.
0: So for example, I do a lot of work with organizations that do legal advocacy work. And some of those organizations believe the metric is how many cases they take or how many cases they win. But for example, I believe, certainly if you're doing impact litigation where you've selected a particular case you think is going to have Mm broad-reaching implications, you can actually lose and win. I'm thinking about um, an organization called Lambda Legal. I was on their board, and they Mm -hmm. went to the Supreme Court to fight for the right for gay boys to join the Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. They lost that case at the Supreme Court. But A, many people believe Lambda Legal won that case. <laughs> and secondly, by virtue of doing that case, they raised so much public awareness that ultimately um, the Boy Scouts did change their policy. So like in those situations, so some, sometimes your metric seems so obvious, but it's actually not obvious at all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah. And,
1: and I think that's where organizations get in trouble is that – Absolutely. There are so many organizations that are doing critical work on human rights, on democracy building, on issues that cannot be measured in the number of people that are walking through your doors every day, which is a lot easier thing to measure. But that does not give them a hall pass from trying to figure out the things that can be measured and going after them rigorously, again, not just to prove that what they're doing is working, but to improve their programs when they are not making progress toward that goal. And so in the case of legal organizations, for example, um, you know, looking at public opinion polls over time and Absolutely. seeing how public opinion polls are changing on some of these issues. I mean, we saw this in in the movement toward gay marriage. I mean, that was something that was it was changing over time, and that would be a great uh, statistic or research or poll to follow for that organization. And thinking through what those are, what's what's important is to know what is your ultimate goal? what are your program interventions? And then looking at the, not just the the ultimate vision, but what are the outcomes that you have to see in the meantime, in order to know that you are on track toward achieving that vision? This is what we call the theory of change. What is your solution to the problem? And I think that's where a lot of organizations fail is they don't have a strong theory of change. And if you don't have a th- strong theory of change, it's really hard to figure out what you're even measuring or what you care to measure because you don't have a strong grip on what you're trying to
0: change. So it's it's interesting, if I may. Um, so I ran an organization called GLAD. It was focused on advocating for fair accurate and inclusive representations of the lgbt community in all forms of media as a way to end discrimination based on gender identity and expression so you know to me the unifying vision was the notion and i don't know if that's a theory of change or not but i used to think about the unifying vision is that stories told th- amplified through the media can change hearts and minds Mhm, and so you know we can say that when we were at glad, we lobbied the New York Times to change their wedding pages to include gay and lesbian couples. Now that's a clear success mm-hmm. um, but you know we couldn't take responsibility or credit for will and grace. I remember talking to a funder at one point mm-hmm. say, well, so Ellen came out, I can't take responsibility for that either. <laughs> um, I kind of <laughs> like it, but um. But what the father said to me is, to me, I want to know that you have access to the right people. So you're having the right conversations and educating mm. people that we know will lead to a change of heart or a change in minds. And so right. like you have to think about it. You know, and and we would do media training so that LGBT leaders could speak articulately in news stories. Yeah. But trainings, the number of trainings doesn't necessarily correspond to the number of press hits in which someone said something that was really powerful. Absolutely, and that's where you have to get
1: ego out of it too. Uh, I, I I'll tell a funny story. I have a very good friend, Nadine Burke Harris, who is running the Center for Youth Wellness, and she started doing research on adverse childhood experiences about ten years ago in her low income clinic in the Bayview district in in San Francisco. She's a doctor, and she realized that these children were suffering. Toxic stress as a as a result of abuse that they were suffering, and long story short, through a lot of research, came up with this ACE test um, that she is advocating be screened in every single pediatrician's office in the country. Right, that is a big goal. I mean, she will not see this progress for a long time. And she has figured out ways to track whether she is on progress towards changing the national conversation around adverse childhood experiences. For example, um, she looks at the Google alerts and, and can show that adverse childhood experiences are coming up in, in Google News X percent more times than um, 10 yep. years ago. She just on 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 this sunday oprah had a 60 minutes segment on the adverse childhood experience test which is her test this oh is her my. language she was not on that segment and you know we were all at dinner laughing like that should have been you i can't believe oprah didn't didn't call you for the, your mm-hmm. interview and she said this is not about me this is impact when I am able to show that people are using my language to change the conversation and they're not even attributing it to me. And so being able to take your ego out of the conversation is really critical um, if you Ultimately, want to have
0: success. Um, Also, taking your board members' ego out of it too, because how many how many board members are going to watch that segment and ping her and say that was a great segment? Tell me again why you weren't on it? Exactly. So, um, so if I'm the development director, I'm like, why were you not on that segment? Uh, So we we really have a lot of time, and 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 I um, I want to make sure we get to a couple of other things. So I. I want to say um, just a couple of things as I'm looking at your book. The, um, so we talked a little bit about testing and measuring impact. The, um, the third piece, which was funding experimentation, I'm, I'm actually just going to tell listeners that um, what you try to tackle in these in this particular section is uh, trying your hand at earned income if it makes sense. you talk about optimizing fundraising efforts. You talk about something that I sing out Louise about all the time, which is diversifying your revenue, not putting all of your eggs in one basket. Um, when I started at Glad, one point two of our one point eight million dollars all came from one special event. The, oh my this, goodness! This is very scary. Then we oh and then gosh. in the um, number four, number five, you talk about leading collaboratively and telling compelling stories. So I, um, I encourage people. We've just given you a, sort of a taste of the book and uh, what I thought were the most um, salient things to cover. But there's. One other question I want to ask you before we, um, before we end, because I'm sure listeners did not miss your expertise in, in um, sort of working with millennials. And when we had our sort of pre-interview, you mentioned the notion that you felt like we were in a philanthropic renaissance. And I wonder if you mm-hmm. could tell me what you meant and what you see as the implications. And you had some amazing statistic about millennials that seemed to factor into your thinking about mm-hmm. that renaissance.
1: Absolutely. I mean, millennials get a bad rap. Let's be honest. <laughs> and you know, I get the privilege of working with millennials at, at Stanford and in my work at Spark, and and just could not be more inspired. We are shifting from a either you go to Goldman Sachs and make money, or you go to a nonprofit and you do good world to blurring the lines more and more that young people feel that doing good is just a part of what they do, regardless of what sector they're in. And so, for example, 85% of millennials ask what a company's social cause is before deciding to go work there. And I think this is really important because it's forcing corporations to stand up and to develop social impact programs and to figure out how to engage their employees for hiring and retention purposes. And ultimately, it becomes a consumer-driven world as well. And so I think we're living in a world where one day there will not be a entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship. It will just be entrepreneurship and good is just what you do. And I think millennials are driving that. And I think that Companies are are, are going to follow on, and I think that there are more opportunities than ever for people to go get involved in social causes and support nonprofits. And I think the role of nonprofits is to harness that energy and to get people involved in their movements, and not just as donors with targets on their back with dollar signs, <laughs> but figuring out how to leverage people's skills and networks and talents and connections all for a good cause.
0: It's very inspiring and gives, gives us all a lot of hope. Um, so speaking of hope, you know, I just wrote my first book and, you know, I can tell you that the aspiration that I had was that, you know, it's, it's part of a board orientation pack for every new board member or every new executive director. That's sort of my aspiration. Do you have an aspiration about your book? I want it to be useful for people. I mean,
1: when I get these tweets and people have it, my book dog-eared and highlighted and, you know, nothing makes me happier that these stories um, that I feature, I feature 66 stories in the book, which is a lot of organizations. Um, But the point is that everybody's got to figure out what works for them. And the more tips and tools that we can provide nonprofits, the more that they're going to be able to test and experiment to figure out what strategies are going to help their particular cause and their particular programs.
0: Awesome. I, um, I wanted to tell you that your book inspired inspired me in a sort of different sort of way. Um, last year, I launched a, uh, uh, an online membership site with content and community for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, and we'll be opening registration again in April. Uh, but I read it, and when I read the book, especially about testing and experimenting I realized I have this whole community of people who are utilizing the content and engaging in the community. I need to ask them more questions about, what content really has been resonating for them? What would they like to see yes. more of? And so I have board members and staff members in there, and I'm really intrigued to make sure and understand how board members are consuming the material, and if there's material that I should have in there that um, that would speak to them, or how I could, you know, use that to potentially engage and market so that more board members join, you know, sort of join our 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 community. Community. and so, mm-hmm. so we're going to do uh and and what i also know is that those kinds of things build um retention and people love to be asked their opinions mm-hmm. and um so i just wanted to say thank you because as soon as i read this i was like oh my gosh i need to be talking more <laughs> to my members so, um, so your users exactly <laughs> right user-centered design i'm on it um i just wanted to say um uh, this has been a longer podcast than I typically have, but i just uh, I felt like there was just so much um, so much important stuff for us to talk about. so I just want to thank you for writing the book and uh, and thank you for sharing your insights with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to continuing the conversation yeah i I was going to
0: say I just feel like this is we 've just taken the first bite of the apple here um, okay. in, the, in the meantime um, just a couple of quick notes. Um, Please join me at joangary.com, G-A-R-R-Y.com, where I offer uh, free blog posts and videos every week that are of, I'm told, of good value and quite practical to leaders, both board and staff. Um, obviously you know about my podcast go to itunes and take a look at the topics there may be just a topic that is completely timely for you that you might find of value and as i mentioned also i have a free workshop coming up it begins on april 17th it's called how to build a thriving nonprofit it's videos you can watch on your own time uh, and you can sign up for that at thrivingnonprofit in the singular dot .org So until next time, thank you so much for everything you do. And I look forward to uh, seeing you next time. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 Kindred Spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.